so this morning, in, in general, we're, we're going to be talking about the moral argument, which I, I would say is probably my most often, my, my go-to in terms of when I'm conversating with people. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to tie off some loose ends with material that I didn't get to address because I wasn't here, so uh, I, I wouldn't have shaped the material exactly of just talking about evolution and creationism. And uh, But basically, there's four issues that flow out of Romans 1 that we looked at last couple weeks ago, uh, that what can be known about God is plain to them because it has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. And so I would identify at least four things, like simple, obvious things, that I would want to set before my unbelieving secular friend as things that they need to account for. Man, I did have it on the PowerPoint, but let's see if I can pull it up really quick. Okay, so number one, they need to give an account for the origins of the universe. That's, that's the cosmological argument. Simply, where did matter come from? Where is the universe come from? How did something come from nothing? Uh, what is the origins of the universe? Number two, they need to account for the ordering of the universe. And that, that's more of the teleological argument that is partially uh, encapsulated by the complexity. Well, actually, we're going to talk about that. But the, the way that there's, intel, there's design evident in creation, there's beauty, there's purpose, the things that we see, that the order and design doesn't come from disorder and chaos. And we're going to watch a short video here soon. But, and then the origin of life, like this is a huge, unaccounted for gap in a secular worldview. So you have matter and material, and then the way that that's arranged and ordered, that's another issue. But then also, where did the first living organism come from? Uh, th this is completely unaccounted for. And then fourthly, the diversity and complexity of life, which you finally get into a kind of information and, you know, the evolution debate. But I just want to play a short video from William Lane Craig on fine-tuning. Uh, so we'll just watch this, just because I wanted to at least throw it in there before we move on to kind of a different domain. From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. 
The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be light-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a light-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a light-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. suggests that a superintellect monkeyed with physics, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. So I just show that just to, instead of me just regurgitating all that information, get, might as well get the graphics and, and all of that. And... And just emphasize, even before you get to the issue of evolution, because that's like where everybody goes right away, uh, and that's where they, they feel pressure to be a specialist and have all the knowledge on evolution and, and that scientific conversation. Uh, but before you even get there, I, I would just say, well, I, I would still need a, a rational answer for the origin of the universe. Where did matter even come from? You'd need to tell me why the order... The universe is so finely tuned and so ordered, uh, so precisely to permit for life. You need to tell me how inanimate matter became a living organism. And then once you can do all of that, after you can account for all of those things, 
then, you know, if, if you want to still have a conversation about the best explanation for the diversity and complexity of life as we see it today, well, well then we can have a, a discussion about evolution and whether or not that is the, the best answer to account for the complexity and the diversity of life. But just so you guys know, there's no scientific consensus for any of those points, particularly, I mean, the first three. They, there's conjecture, like the multiverse, but, but it's pure speculation and pure conjecture. There, there's no evidence of such a multiverse or anything that there is any universe beyond our universe. In fact, the only reason that they have speculated that there is such a thing as the multiverse is because the, the burden to give an explanation for why our universe would be so finely tuned to allow for life, uh, that hurdle is so big and, and seems so unlikely that the, the only way to solve it is to speculate, well, maybe there is an infinite number of universes, so it's inevitable that in one of the infinite number of universes that one of them would be life-permitting. But you could just very calmly point out, well, that's not scientific, uh, and there's no evidence to demonstrate that. So, if, if you feel intimidated by the evolution discussion, I would just point to any of those or, or all of those uh, other issues. Uh, you know, can, can you explain to me the origins of the universe? Uh, those four. The ordering of the u- universe, the origin of life, and then we can talk about the diversity and complexity of life. And you just explained that, you know, for me to believe that all of that happened without any cause, without any intelligence, and without any intention is beyond comprehension to me. And so, as we interact on that level, I would just recommend just those four things. And, and you can, you know, just kind of stow them away. And you might ultimately come to an impasse where, where you say, well, you know, I think it's just much more logical and rational to believe that there is an infinite, almighty God who created the world and all that we see than believing that there's a multiverse and that all this happened by random chance and, and just time and evolution, whatever. Uh, and you might come to an impasse, but I would say at least you have given an account, you've stood your ground, uh, and you've not just <laughs> been trampled over and shown in their minds to be, oh, this person's just in, you know, ignorant, unthoughtful, unscientific person who doesn't engage with the world around them. But we're going to move on from from the material world. I just wanted to outline some of those briefly into the kind of the immaterial world. And so today, like I said, we're going to be talking about the uh, the moral argument. So I don't think we have any time for questions. So I'm just going to I'm just going to keep going. Like I said earlier, the, the moral argument is probably the, the first place that I'm going to go, uh, or at least I'm going to be inclined to go, uh, because, number one, like cosmological argument, it's biblical. We, we see it explicitly drawn out in Scripture, or at least the foundation for it. Number two, it leads well and easily into gospel conversations. And, and that's the point. We're not trying to just do intellectual sparring, but we're trying to lead people into gospel conversations about Christ and their need for a Savior, uh, and this provides a good pathway to that. But then, also number three, is that most unbelievers resonate with it in some ways, and it is intuitive even though they don't necessarily believe it. They don't profess to believe it, but it resonates with them uh, by their experience. Meaning that, you know, the, the same secular left that would be very hostile towards my presentation of a God who is exclusive and, and who, who, you know, Jesus Christ is the, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Those same people that, that would be very opposed to that, and maybe just the idea that even God exists at all, would also oftentimes be very earnest about social justice issues like racial reconciliation and poverty. And those are good things. It is good to be concerned about issues like that. And we can affirm those concerns as good. And then ask, after we talk about that, which worldview offers the better foundation 
for concern for the welfare of other human beings. And I said, without doubt, like no question, it's a Christian worldview over a, a kind of secular, godless worldview. Uh, so I want to just start with a biblical foundation. Where do we see this drawn out? And so we have the material issues in, in Romans 1, that what can be known about God is clearly perceived through the things that have been made. But then in Romans 2, Paul talks about uh, more immaterial issues. It's not exactly this systematic, but we see the, the issue of morality. And so we're going we're gonna to look at Romans 2, 12 to 16 together. So, And if you know the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 3 are all about basically bringing the whole world under the condemnation uh, for their own sinfulness. Uh, he's bringing everyone under the, the need for a Savior, an awareness of their sin. And that's what Paul is doing in Romans 1 to 3. And without exploring the, the whole context, uh, I just want to read Romans 2, 12 to 16. Does someone want to read that out loud for us? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So I know some of the phrases in there might be confusing on the surface. Uh, like, what does it mean for someone to sin without the law or perish without the law? Uh, but I think the point is simply that the Jews who did have the law of God spelled out explicitly in detail are more accountable to God. Their sin is more heinous because they have the, the law written out for them. Nevertheless, Paul goes on, that the Gentiles, in verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Uh, so even pagans who have never received a single word of special revelation are still accountable before God for their sin. Why? Because at least in a basic elementary sense, the law of God is inscribed upon their hearts. And as Paul goes on to say, and they don't even live up to that, uh, as we don't. So uh, the Christian's argument is not at all that all unbelievers are you know, just completely immoral and, and they can't do anything moral and, and you have to have the Bible to do anything moral. That, that's not at all what Scripture is teaching or uh, our argument. It's not impossible to do anything, uh, you know, moral apart from the knowledge of Scripture. Rather, the whole point is that there is a universal moral impulse in every culture at all throughout humanity, at every place, at all times, in all places. And even if that moral standard varies from place to place in different ways, and if you have a biblical worldview, you know it's because of sin uh, and because the perversity of our heart. It doesn't change the fact that humans are inescapably moral beings. And even if... So, sinful, corrupt, and depraved as we might be, we are still made in the image of God. And even though our moral standards are mangled and corrupt in different ways... The point is <laughs> that we still have them. And there are people who do at least outwardly do what the law requires, according to Paul here. And that proves not that, oh, well, then God is unnecessary and we don't need him, but that human beings are made in the image of God who is a moral being. And that's impressed upon their heart. Paul goes on and says, their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So again, the issue is not 
whether their conscience is rightly informed. That's not what Paul is discussing here, but that they do have a conscience, and, and that their conscience sits as the judge and the arbiter over their actions, over their desires, over their impulses, rendering judgments that that, that was wrong, that that was right, and they're subject to their own, the guilt of their own conscience. And this is a universal experience for all people. That number one, we have a conscience, and then number two, we we fail to live up to that conscience. And you can see how this would easily lead into gospel conversations. But that's the biblical worldview in terms of the, the how does the, the unbelieving world and, and the even pagans who are unfamiliar with the law of God and scripture relate to morality. Even as reformed people who believe in total depravity, there is a category still that we are made in the image of God. And by nature, we are moral beings. And at times, we can at least outwardly do what the law requires. So we we look around at the data and see that human beings are inescapably moral beings, uh, which makes sense within the context of a biblical worldview, because we are made in the image of God. But we also look around and see that human beings have differing standards of morality, and we don't live up to that morality, and even our own ideals of what we think is moral which is accounted for by the fact that we're sinful and corrupt and our moral intuition is not as it should be. So that is the biblical foundation for uh, the moral argument. The formal you know, philosophical syllogism would go like this. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. So, premise number one is that you know, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And I'd say the key word here is objective. Uh, everyone believes that moral values exist because everyone has moral values. Every culture, every individual has them. The only people who avowedly have no moral values and live according to that, uh, we call them psychopaths, and nobody wants to be a psychopath. So, the question is not whether there's a conception or a category of moral values, but whether or not those moral values are objective and whether they are transcendent, meaning that they are the same in all places at all times, or whether they are subjective moral values that are individually defined or just culturally defined and vary from place to place. And so the point of the first premise is to say uh, there is no rational foundation for any objective moral value if God does not exist. If there is not a moral law giver in which to root those moral values, then no objective morality can exist. You know, if, if we look at the op- opposing worldview, if we are the product of nothing more than random chance and unguided processes, there's obviously no place for objective moral values that span space and time, or, or just at all, really, that are not just merely a, a social construct. And I imagine that actually most everyone would agree with the first premise. Once they've thought about it, and once you've explained the terms, typically the debate is going to center around the the second premise, whether objective moral values do, in fact, exist. And of course, for the secular person, the the answer is simply, no, I deny the second premise. I do not believe that objective moral values exist. Therefore, I don't believe that that's an argument for the existence of God. And so the question is, well, okay, do objective moral values exist? Uh, And that's oftentimes the the, the premise that you're going to explore in, in a conversation with someone. And, you know, you probably aren't going to be talking in these terms, so they're probably not going to say, well, I deny the second premise, and therefore I deny the conclusion. Uh, but, you know, informally, these things come up often, of like, well, you know, morals are just subjective, or uh, there is no such thing as absolute truth. So, the way that these are going to fall out in conversation are going to be different. And Keller, Tim Keller, does a good job 
his book, uh, Reason for God, points to different ways that, that he has had this conversation. And so some of the questions that, that he you know, uses as he engages usually young people who doubt the existence of God, and yet they feel very strongly about lots of things, uh, moral issues that, that they are uh, earnest about. And, and so he just said, well, tell me something that you feel is really wrong. And he recounts this conversation with a young woman who immediately speaks up about women being marginalized and oppressed. And Keller says, yeah, I, I agree. Women are, are made in the image of God, and I think it's wrong to oppress women, to marginalize women, to abuse women. But, you know, I believe that because I think they're made in the image of God. But wh- why do you believe that? And, you know, she says, well, women are human beings, and all people have human rights, and it's wrong to trample on someone's rights. But he says, you know, who says women have rights? You know, who says that human beings have rights? Who, who gives them that dignity and that worth and that value? And he, as he recounts the conversation, which I think is often the case, if you talk to people, they just say, well... It just is that way. People have rights. But to just keep probing, and that's what he does, well, why do human beings have rights? And, and where do those rights come from? And she just says, well, everyone knows it's wrong to violate another person's rights. Uh, and that's true in one sense. She's right. People do know that. And they know it because we're made in the image of God. But to, to some degree but we also <laughs> violate our conscience and we're selfish and depraved. But, so Keller responds, uh, well, actually, you know, there's a lot of people who don't know that. And if people don't have a Western view of human rights, they might think that women are inferior and they might think it's perfectly fine and acceptable to marginalize women and oppress them and use them for your own selfish purposes. But, if there is no God and we are just animals, as, as this woman thought, then why would it be wrong to trample on someone else's rights? Moreover, if humans are just evolved animals, why do we attribute moral value to our decisions and our actions, but we don't attribute moral value to the actions of bears or lions or any other animals if, if we are just animals, just like them, uh, and there's no distinction between human beings and the rest of the animal world, then why do all human beings live practically as if there are distinctions? And and so these are just conversations that we can have. Uh, And as Keller points out, people still have moral convictions uh, as much as ever. You know, we talk about moral decay in our culture and all these things, but people still have convictions. The dif- difference between now and in generations past is that th- there's no rational foundation for these convictions. Uh, as he says, they're just free-floating convictions, free-floating morality. And the thing is, I, I will say this over and over again, if you actually talk to people, most of them have never thought about their worldview. Most of them have never thought about whether the conclusions of their worldview logically and coherently follow from the premises that they believe. There is an incoherence, and they've never thought about it. Uh, They've never been confronted with it. And and so that's one of the things that you're doing here, is, is just asking questions, trying to probe and expose for them of whether or not that conclusion actually follows from the premise. So another question that, that Keller asks that might be helpful for you or something like it, he says, aren't there people in the world who are doing things you believe are wrong? Things, and this is the key point, things that they should stop doing no matter what they personally believe about the correctness of their behavior. Because as soon as you believe the second part, that they should stop doing that, regardless of what they think, you have immediately become a moral absolutist. 
<laughs> that there are standards that should be imposed upon people and are incumbent upon all people to adhere to regardless of whether or not they agree with that and whether or not they share those same values. And it's not the point is not to have a list of gotcha questions, but to be able to ask questions that open up conversations and expose real inconsistencies in people's worldview. Yeah. So they claim to be a moral relativist, uh, that there's, there's no moral, objective moral standards, but inevitably <laughs> they live as if there are. Uh, they move through the world and they vote as if there are and, and they, you know, they, they take up social causes, all sorts of things, as if decisions have moral value that actually are significant and uh, meaningful. And, you know, one simple way to expose the inconsistency or incoherence in their worldview is, and it's probably what I do, maybe it's not as tactful as it should be, but is to just press them on things that are obviously egregious and terrible, morally heinous, and, and to ask them what they think about. So if you're using Keller's question, uh, are there people in the world who are doing things you believe are wrong and that they should stop doing no matter what they personally believe about the correctness of their behavior. And if they don't have an answer, I would perhaps suggest one for them of, you know, what, what about sex trafficking young girls? Uh, is that wrong? And of course, everybody is going to say, yes, that, that's wrong, that is evil. And then you would insist that this is wrong for all people, Right? in all places, regardless of your cultural context. Even if somebody says, in their worldview, that girls are created for man's pleasure, you would say, it's still evil. I don't care what they say. And anybody who is unwilling to uh, acknowledge that is just being inconsistent with their worldview. Uh, Because they're saying, you know, Morals are relative. Um, morals are not objective. Morals are not transcendent. Morals are, are culturally defined. But as soon as you present them with an issue that, that is obvious, clear, they say, well, no, no that, that, that's wrong all the time. There's no circumstance under which it's okay to sex traffic young girls. Uh, in which case, I would say, yeah, I, I agree with you, and I'm glad you think that. Uh, but the question is, which worldview does that conclusion flow out of? Does that conclusion flow out of a worldview that says there, there is no moral significance and no moral value in the world? Or does it flow out of a worldview that says there is an objective, you know, eternal lawgiver who has established a moral order in the world that we live in and who governs the world and we're accountable to that law? Which of those resonates in your heart that, you know, trafficking young women is actually evil and wrong and deserves, there's a punishment that that is commiserate with such an evil action, or that is just a one kind of action that has no moral value? Uh, Which of those resonates with your soul? And that's what I mean by like this is what people actually believe. The, the, the problem is not that they're immoral and, and have no moral values. The problem is that they're, the way that they live doesn't actually flow out of their professed worldview. But, I mean, and you could do that, the same sort of thing with any number of issues. And I would usually pick an issue if I knew the person cared about that issue uh, because it would resonate with it. would... Uh, rightly, there is a righteous indignation that they feel because they know these things are real, that there is moral significance in the world. So, you know, you ask about, well, what about enslaving Africans? Uh, Was it wrong for white Southerners to enslave black people and treat them as animals, even though it was culturally acceptable at the time? You know, within the context of the South, that was their, many people thought that, Black people and Africans were subhuman. At least that's the lie that they told themselves so that they could justify 
their hatred and and their oppression of them. Uh, but th- those are the kinds of things that I would want to ask, and I would just say, you know, can you explain to me if there are no moral absolutes which transcend time and culture, how could you possibly say that it was actually wrong to enslave or or segregate or to lynch African Americans? How can you say that any of those things are objectively wrong if you don't believe in objective moral value? And you can do that with anything, any myriad of issues, especially if you know that there's issues that the person cares about. And again, the point is not to have gotcha questions. The point is not to construe them as uh, an evil person who doesn't is immoral. But the point is to, to say, hey, I, I know you think racism is wrong. Uh, I think racism is wrong too. But I have a rational reason for why I believe that. Why do you believe that? Is that a conclusion that logically follows out of, out of a evolutionary materialist worldview? So, you know, I would tell the person, you, you can say, you, you have a question or... I was just going to say I, I enjoy the uh, the contradiction of that in that animals, which are not human, uh, birds, beautiful songs, beautiful animals, but they will kill their neighbors' babies or their eggs or their territorial heartlessly. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously they're mis- they're lacking any kind of conscience or struggle with those things that a human being does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, well, I'm going to stop. Yeah. But. Yeah, and, and I, would, I would highlight, you know, so, somebody might debate whether or not, well, primates have, you know, there, there's moral values in, in primate community, and they, they might say all sorts of things, but I would say, and yet, even still, you don't hold them morally accountable for their actions. <laughs> you don't hold anything in, in the universe morally accountable except other human beings. And yet you say that I'm an animal. But if I lived like an animal, then you would hold me morally culpable. Uh, and, and you would use language like that. It's not just that you would punish me and, you know, bind me up in prison so I couldn't hurt people, but, but you would actually, there's moral outrage. We, we live in an outrage culture, and yet at the same time, a culture that denies moral values. Like, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, and so, part of the, the goal is just to expose that. So, you know, they undermine the, the foundation for, for the very things that they care about. And if people are going to insist on moral relativism, <laughs> then I would just want to, in the course of that conversation, get them to, with their mouth, follow the logical conclusions, uh, and, and to actually say, because it's just, it's self-evident that these things are false and that they don't believe them, and yet, this is their, their worldview. And so I would want to try to lead that person along and say, so are you telling me that you don't think it's objectively wrong to rape a woman. Is that what you're saying? Just, just so we're clear, is that what you're communicating? Uh, that those are just Western values. And, you know, especially if you're talking to people in a group, like, nobody wants to say that out loud because it's ridiculous. And everyone knows that it's ridiculous and they feel it intuitively. And part of it is to show that you don't even believe the things that are coming out of your mouth. In your heart of hearts, you do believe that rape and molesting a child is objectively evil in all places, at all times, regardless of the societal constructs and the cultural norms. It's evil. And you know that intuitively. And so I I would appeal to the fact that they're image bearers. And you know that because the law of God, like Scripture says, is written upon your heart. And even though we're messed up and corrupt, you still know this intuitively. And so even if it doesn't flow out of your worldview, you know what? You're still going to act with a, 
a sense of decency and morality, and you're going to treat other people uh, with a certain level of yeah, decency. And of course, we can find exceptions there. We, we see evil in the world. But the point is that, that universally, <laughs> we all look at that and we say, that's evil. And we can account for that too because of depravity and, and the fall and, and the perversion of our moral compass. And the fact that we're willing to violate our own morality for the sake of gratifying our sinful pleasures. So, you know, one way that that my professor explained apologetics is imagining our worldviews as houses, uh, as structures. And, And we should be willing to to take a tour in somebody else's house and let them show us around and and say, oh yeah, well, this is what I believe here and and this is how this works. And, you know, here's my living room. Here's my bathroom. Here's my bedroom. This this is my worldview. And we want to be able to, willing to listen to people and listen well, uh, engage with people, uh, but then also say, you know, this roof there's like nothing holding up this roof that in your in your house uh, like the the foundation there's a, a huge crack in it and this is not a functional foundation or you know this wall only has one stud like th- this doesn't actually work and that's what you're doing in questions of the with the moral argument uh, and, and of course, there, there's going to be people who are who really are logically consistent with their worldview, and, and I'm not saying everybody is going to fall into this neat box, but you will find that most people have never thought about these things. And then, after you know, touring around their house and their worldview, and say, "Well, can I can I show you what my worldview looks like?" And then and then you do like. We talked about from the very beginning, you reason with them from Scripture. You're giving an account for the, the universal presence of conscience and morality in all cultures and all places, and then also the perversion of that morality that the Bible gives an account for, uh, and that is reasonable and coherent. And we show them that, you know, actually the Bible does give us the, the best and most comprehensive answer for the world that we live in. And I would also say earlier, I said that debate, the debate usually centers around the, the second premise that objective moral values exist. But there are people who will readily concede when you say it that, you know, do you think rape is objectively wrong? And they'll say, well, yeah, of course. You know, and then you ask, well, are there any places, any times in which rape is okay? And they say, no, rape is always wrong. So so that's objectively true for all people. And they'll say, yeah. And then the question becomes not the the second premise, but the first premise. And then you're just showing them, well, in order for anything to be objectively wrong, then there must be an objective lawgiver in which that objective moral value is grounded. And, And so then the conversation is different. And not, not that you need to memorize it, but that's why it can be helpful to know a simple syllogism like that because you know where the conversation, where, where the point of tension is. Do I need to explore the first premise or do I need to explore the, the second premise? And then if I can show them that both of these premises are true, then I, I can say, hey, that means that God does exist. And again, you haven't won the, the day just because even if they concede that, uh, all of this is aimed at having gospel conversations with people. Uh, then, then we have an opportunity to say, okay, we have an objective moral law, and, and how have you done? Because I haven't done very well. I have violated my own conscience. Uh, even my own messed up standard of morality, I don't even live up to that, let alone God's holy and perfect law. And you know, if there is an objective law giver, and he is a just judge, that means he's going to punish sin. And, and then, you know, you have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Uh, that This is how your worldview works, and you, and you share with them that they, like you, have fallen short of the glory of God. They don't even live up to their own conscience, which 
Well, I won't get into that. But and then there's a there's a solution in Christ who who came to atone for our sins. Marcus, you want to? Yeah, just to tack on to that, that, that's something that a lot of people will admit. It's even in language like in, like nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. Or I'm only human. It's kind of referring to this shared understanding that exactly what you said that we don't live up to our mm-hmm. our standards. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's another way in which it just, it common sense intuitively resonates with, with people. Because they know, like they have experienced guilt themselves. They have known, I shouldn't do this thing. And then they have continued to do it anyways. And so we're simply giving explanation for that of why, why that's there, uh, why it's significant, and then how Ultimately, you want to have the conversation of how that problem of violating our conscience and our own morality can be resolved in Christ. So that's typically how I'm going to just make use of the conversation in simple, you know, real-life situations. And, and with all these issues, uh, there, are, there are higher-level issues and lower-level issues. So the higher-level issues or conversations surrounds the concept of where morality comes from and whether or not moral intuitions could evolve in, in evolution, I would say that, that's going to be a higher level conversation uh, that's going to be more academic and more nitty gritty that you're probably not going to have that conversation with most people. The lower level conversation is going to be the things that we talked about. Uh, whether or not the, the moral values that we have are real and objective or just a you know, social construct that are defined by us and that, that we have kind of the, the freedom to define our own moral values or whether they're based in something that's objective and unchanging in the, the nature of God himself. You know, but at the end of the day, if somebody does not believe in an objective standard, you just want to explore the implications of that. Okay, what does it mean for you to say that there is no objective morality, uh, that morality is relative. And I pointed out that you know, if you telling me that no action has moral value, then, then why do you live all of your life like you do? And, and I would uh, point them to their own life. Like, you live as if your life matters, as if the decisions you make have moral value. And I've had conversations with people where I pointed that out, like, I know you, you're a good dude. <laughs> Why do you care about doing the right thing when you say, by your own confession, that you don't believe in right and wrong, that it has no objective value? And, and you know, I've been told, well, this is just something we do as humans to give our life significance and value. And I've also heard that, like, that's like that morality is the reason why life continues. Like if we didn't have morality, right, we would be like extinct. <laughs> so yeah. like in order like to make good decisions is what allows life to progress, which goes back to like the naturalism argument, right? Like yeah. life exists for life itself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that would be the, the higher level. I, I would put it in a higher level conversation of, of whether or not Evolution provides a a sufficient reason, you know, and natural selection for the development of moral intuition, which, yeah, honestly, we're, it's a different conversation. But I, I would say that's not giving an explanation for the thing itself. Saying that it's necessary doesn't give an explanation for the development of it. And it doesn't really make sense on multiple fronts, like, you have lots of other animal species that are doing fine without these moral values. But anyways, but I would say what I have said in that conversation to the person who's like, well, I know moral values aren't objective and real, but I live as if they are because it gives significance and value to my life. And I'm saying, okay, that's fine. Like, I'm glad you do. I'm, I'm glad you don't live out your world worldview, but... Just to be clear, like you're the one claiming to be the rational, just the facts, evidence person. 
And you're telling me that you intentionally delude yourself so that you can make your life livable every day. And that, like, that, that's fine, but you're free to do that. But <laughs> I, don't call me the irrational one when, when you, by your own confession, are intentionally deluding yourself and living in a, basically a fantasy land to, to make life livable. So, and again, I, I don't want to make these conversations seem combative because the, the point is not to be combative or to be harsh, but to expose problems with a worldview. Just that uh, a moral compass is an absolute truth. And, you know, what's worthy of that person understanding is that, you know, the Bible talks about that and it has greater explanation of that of a moral conscience. Mm-hmm. You know, that is a truth. That's something you can't ignore. You can look at it and you can see in whatever perspective you come from. Mm-hmm. But uh, so it, it does it does point back to the idea that the Bible has that legitimate truth in there and it's worthy of investigating yeah. if they're open minded people. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, it, Anyway, yeah. Just, uh... yeah. Why, why don't we why don't we close? I'll pray, and uh, if you do have questions or comments afterwards, feel free to to stay. Father, we are uh, well aware that we are people made in your image. That that we have a conscience, uh, and Lord, we are aware that we don't even live up to our own conscience. Uh, Lord, we have sinned against you and violated the conscience that you've given us. And Lord, we repent of that. We ask for your forgiveness. But Lord, help us to also uh, use these truths to to testify to who you are, that there is an objective law giver uh, that exists and who governs the world and that who, who we're accountable to. Uh, and I pray that we'd be able to steward your truth well so that we can Point people to Christ who is able to forgive us of our sins in the ways that we have transgressed your law. Uh, And so give us boldness, uh, give us humility, give us a love for neighbor, and give us a willingness to to speak and to have conversations with people uh, about their worldview and our worldview. And, And Lord, we know that the truth is on our side and that your word is true and and just help us to, to be willing and faithful to communicate that and to, to do it humbly and in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.